folks, and welcome to episode 10 of Charlie's Geek Cast. My name is Charlie Niemeyer, and today we're going to continue our look through Grant Morrison's JLA run with a look at issues 6 and 7, in which the JLA take on angels and the evil demon Neron. But before we do that, we've got some listener feedback to take a look at. First up, we've got a po- a p- episode comment posted by Russell Bragg. And he posted this on episode 9, which was, uh, well, last episode, uh, where I went over all those 80s cartoons. And he writes, Another wonderful episode. Shame on me. But the shows of the shows you talked about, I only watched two of them, Spider-Man and Fat Albert. Some of the others I've heard of, but back then I either wasn't interested or they weren't on in our area. I was entering junior high in 1980 and was a senior in college by the end of 89. I must be one of the weirdest geeks because I love comic books and I love superheroes, but I could never get into G.I. Joe or Transformers or Thundercats, etc. The only contact I had with He-Man was the preview comic story he and Superman had during the Bronze Age when he shows up on Robot and when he shows up on Robot Chicken. I hadn't even watched Star Wars until I met my wife in 1999 and we watched it together. I still haven't watched all three movies yet. Well, just so you know, there's six of them, but who's counting? Plus, I've never watched Star Trek, new or old. So I am trying to learn as you talk about geek things I don't have a clue about. I will admit that I love the comic episodes best, but I am listening to every one. I found out earlier that iTunes will allow me to rate your show only once, which I did after your first episode. I'm sure you'll get more in time. Well, here I go again, rambling on and on and not knowing how to sign off. I hope I haven't shamed myself to my fellow geek listeners. I'd hate to be shunned on Facebook. I wish you continued success. Well, thanks, Russell. Russell also had a follow-up to that, which he actually posted on my other show, Superman of the Bronze Age, but I found it, and I figured out what he was talking about. So, P.S., it slipped my mind, but my wife took me to see Phantom Menace on one of our first dates. I may be the only person to see a Star Wars prequel before seeing an original Star Wars movie. Keep up the great work. Alright, well, first, two things. Number one, I don't blame you for not getting into this other stuff. You were hitting, like, what, 11 or 12 by 1980? So you were kind of getting out of the age range to like that kind of stuff, I would say. Um... So I don't blame you for not liking any of those. That doesn't... I wouldn't call you the weirdest geek, uh, because most of the geeks that do these podcasts that I know are closer to my age, so they would have been the right age for this stuff. So, seriously, I think you're all right there. If these show has had been on ten years earlier, you probably would have been more into them. As for Star Wars, that I can't promise you won't get shamed on. There's six of them. There's about to be seven. You've got to watch them before the new one comes out. It's just going to be mandatory. And Phantom Menace was your first one. At least you're starting low. Um, If you start there and work your way through, it it, it gets good. And then you have... uh, It it gets good. But I I would highly recommend trying to get your hands on those and watching those as much as possible um, before the seventh one comes out in a couple years highly recommended please do that as for Star Trek I'm going to tell you I never really got too much into it either I've watched the movies on Netflix the original crew movies 
but only up to number four. I think it was four. Yeah, the whale one was the last one. Um, so I've only watched the first four of those. I've watched like one episode of the old school stuff, and I've seen a few episodes of the Next Generation, but really, I'm not a star, much of a Star Trek fan either, so I don't blame you for that. However, I do recommend at least seeing something so that you can say you've seen it. Um, the movie, the newest movie, while not being everyone's favorite, isn't isn't a bad way to go. Um, especially if you haven't seen any of it yet, it's pretty much a ground floor story. Uh, as for the older movies, I wouldn't recommend seeing the first one first because it will tire you out. Because um, I've started falling asleep during it. Um, but yeah, I would recommend seeing something just so you can say you've seen it. I'm sorry you're not a huge fan of the non-comic book ones, uh, non-comic book episodes. Um, I am trying to cover more than just comics on this show because I like more than just comics. And... Well, I I just like more than just comics. There's there's going to be some other stuff, maybe stuff you've seen. Um, Knight Rider, Power... Well, probably not Power Rangers when I get to that. But hopefully the stuff you you will have seen, I'll have some guests on, which will make it even a little more exciting and fun. But, um, yeah. Uh, also, hopefully, you have at least tried Doctor Who. Since you haven't tried Star Wars and Star Trek. Please say you've tried that. If you haven't, get the to Netflix or BBC America on cable or something. Just trust me on that. You'll be happier when if you do. Um, next up, we have an email from Mr. Steve Rogers, who actually hasn't written in a while, so I'm glad to hear him ba hear back from. Him. Um, and Steve writes, How about geeking out to PBS's kids-oriented shows of the 80s? Hey, Chuckster, love the love for cartoons, but how about some love for shows designed to educate as well as entertain? Well, he meant educated. There was the thing at the end of it. Anyway, beyond the preschool staples like Mr. Rogers, um, no relation, and Sesame Street, I think love should be given to stuff like Electric Company, Romper Room, 321 Contact, Nature, Nova, Wild America, Newton's Apple, Reading Rainbow, etc. Stuff designed to be educational and entertainment as kitties were weaned off of the street. Speaking of which, and probably what is prompting this, sadly there are no such options on PBS anymore. Not those shows specifically. I mean, Sesame Street's decades of lasting power is rare for any TV show, let alone children's programming, but stuff like it to teach science, nature, imagination building, math skills, etc. On public broadcasting, anyway. Kind of sad, in a way. You know, I honestly don't know. I usually avoided the PBS like the plague when I was a kid. I watched Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers, maybe a couple, maybe one or two other shows my entire childhood. And then later on, when um, when I had a, a little cousin, started having little cousins, um, you know, then I was kind of reintroduced to things like Barney and Friends and a couple other shows, Clifford the Big Red Dog, and a few others. So, um... Was the big comfy couch? 
and Arthur was PBS, but was Big Red Big? There was a show like called The Big Comfy Couch or something. I wonder if that was on. Anyway, um, so that's kind of why I didn't do any of those. Um, but how about this? together we might as well say would you be mine could you be mine won't you be my neighbor won't you please won't you please please won't you be my neighbor Everyone in. 
try to be better with when I do the 90s stuff, which is a little ways down the road, but I'll try to do better then. I apologize for not counting the stuff on PBS. Of course, the 90s have also got to count Nickelodeon, too, so yeah. Anyway, Steve continues. Well, anyway, besides that, when is the talk of the 1980s toys coming? Wondering how many Washington Redskins starting lineup figures you had alongside all those other great lines of the day. Signed, Steve. Well, Steve... Uh, as if you, if anyone knows, if you know me on Facebook, I am a little bit of a fan of the Washington Redskins. I was born and bred in um, as a Redskin fan, being from kind of southern central Maryland, and yeah, my whole family loves them, uh, and that still rings true to this day, even though most of us are no longer in that area. So, yeah. I'm a huge Redskins fan. I never had the starting lineup figures. One, because I thought that was weird to have like a little replica of an actual person, you know, instead of like a fake person like Superman. Uh, also, um, I never really thought the starting lineup figures looked much like the actual person other than getting the uniform and the helmet right, you know? So I never got those. Um, in fact, the only Redskins, I guess you could call it, figure that I've ever owned, I own now, too, uh, that I only got it, like, last year, and it's kind of a, it's kind of a statue, it wasn't priced like a statue, but it's kind of like a statue, and it has no articulation, and uh, it's of John Riggins, who was a famous, who was a big running back for the Redskins in the early 80s, and late 70s, I think, and, uh, is the was the MVP of Super Bowl 17 is the one that made the big run to win the game over the Miami Dolphins I've got him that's it uh, as for other toys of the 80s I probably won't get into the toys only because I didn't really get a chance to get a ton of them and what I did got busted up pretty good and I don't really remember most of them. I mean, I can sit here and tell you I had, like, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Voltron, Transformers, He-Man. 
Captain Power. Um, but basically my thoughts are, if I'm going to talk about the toys, we'll talk about those when I get into the special episodes about those shows. Because, like I said, I will have special episodes about those things. I've already done a couple about Transformers, and we talked a lot about the toys there. Um, when I get, you know, I'll do Voltron, and we'll talk about the toys there. I'll do He-Man, we'll talk about the toys there. Um, and that kind of stuff. So, I guess... I won't do a specific show just about the toys. They will be covered with the other when I actually cover those specific properties in their own shows. But, um, yeah, I hope you like the uh, music and uh, I hope that helps. Thank you guys for writing in very much. It makes it so much easier to do this show when we have audience participation. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back with our two issues for this episode. Gathered together from the far reaches of the internet are assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero, Superman. Superman. Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring the thrilling adventures of Superman, Golden Age Superman, the Superman Fan Podcast, Superman in the Bronze Age, From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman Podcast, The New 52 Adventures of Superman, Superman Forever Radio, I've got a few things to say about Superman. The Kara's World Podcast. The Superman Vidcast. The world's best podcast. And Radio Kale from supermanhomepage.com. Join hosts Michael Bradley, John Wilson, Billy Hogan, Charlie Niemeyer, J. David Weeder, Jeffrey Taylor, Michael Bailey, Scott Gardner, Danny Sapp, Cayman Stoll, I'm Isaac, I'm Adam, Dave Eunice, and co host Scotty V. At supermanpodcastnetwork.com. I won't let you get away with this! From here on out, everything changes. Learn what happens when you mess with the most powerful being in the universe! Please, Goofy, you can't die! In the wake of the battle with Frieza and the destruction of planet Namek, a new threat comes to terrorize Earth. The androids. I am the prince of all Saiyans once again. Stay out of this one, Vegeta. He's mine. A young man with long black hair and a scarf tied around his neck. And 18. Female. Blonde. Not unattractive. Those are the worst villains the Earth will ever know. Starting in December and continuing throughout the entirety of 2013, join Donovan and Jesse as they chronicle Dragon Ball Z's most prominent sagas and battles. From the vicious villains. I'm bored. It's time for you to die. And the heroic good guys. I won't let you leave Earth till I make you pay for what you've done. Who are always. Bring it on! Always screaming. Kaioken Dimestead! <laughs> Wait! It's the legend! Soon you will be at his mercy. What mercy? The next dimension. 
dbznextdimension.libson.com. You're about to find out what it's like to fight a real Super Saiyan. And I'm not talking about Goku. Programming note, I'm doing a special crossover between Charlie's Geekcast and Superman of the Bronze Age next month, which will kind of take be two media episodes for this show. As such, I've decided to make this month all comics episodes to kind of keep things fair. However, due to technical difficulties, the first time I did this episode, I lost it. So instead of doing three comic episodes this month, I'm only going to do two. Anyway, our first issue this month is just is JLA number six, which had a cover date of June 1997 and an on-sale date of April 9th, 1997 and a somewhat reasonable cover price of $1.95. The cover is by Howard Porter and John Dell, and colored by Liquid Graphics, and shows, shows the demon Neron basically drinking the JLA out of a glass of some sort of red liquid, which I can only imagine what that is. Um, Batman isn't here, but then again, he's not in this story, so I guess that kind of makes sense. The title of this of this story is Fire in the Sky, written by Grant Morrison, penciled by Howard Porter, inked by John Dell, colored by Pat Garrahy, separated by Heroic Age, lettered by Ken Lopez, and edited by Ruben Diaz. In a hospital in San Francisco, two nurses watching over a coma patient wish upon a shooting star. Meanwhile, inside the plant on the patient's nightstand, we're able to peer into a little corner of hell. There we see the Dark Lord Neron and two of his little demons, Ghast and Abnagazar. Neron has plans for them in a trade for souls. Outside of the plant, we see that the shooting star isn't really a star, but a man with wings who appears to be on fire due to air friction. And he's got more winged men behind him, although they seem to be flying in under their own power. At the JLA Watchtower, Flash and Superman are getting things set up in their new base of operations. Superman expresses some concern over the new Green Arrow joining the team, but soon the conversation switches to how uncomfortable he is with the way everyone seems to look up to him, and his worries that he can't live up to, the, to this myth they want him to be. Before it can go much further, however, they're interrupted by a green construct of Green Lantern's head, telling the men that he's picked up an alarm from from Jean in San Francisco. Flash runs to the teleporter room to head down to Earth, but finds himself trapped, not fully be able to materialize in either place. On Earth, under the sea, Jean has a conversation with the winged man, who does not seem to be injured and is also able to breathe under the water. While the winged man is busy exclaiming that he's become solid flesh, the water divides, and the two men find themselves in a dry column surrounded by water. They are soon joined by two more winged men with red eyes, wearing chains, and carrying fiery staffs. These, they identify the winged man as Zariel, and tell him that he is to be erased from the book which apparently means the world. It's not a meta thing. Out in Japan, Wonder Woman and Aquaman have defeated a young otaku calling himself Animek and his robot monster Mang Mangatron. Wonder Woman picks up the JLA alarm and Aquaman decides to join her because, despite resisting joining the team earlier, he's actually enjoying being in the JLA. Back in San Fran, the parted... Water's standoff is broken when Green Lantern arrives and insults one of the darker-winged men with a fish construct, wearing a bowler hat and smoking a cigar, and calling him a butthead. But a blast from the winged man's hand sends GL flying. 
Just then, Aquaman shows up, emerging from one side of the water column, grabbing the dark-winged man named Tramiel, and forcing him into the water on the other side. As their little tussle goes airborne, Jean has decided that he's had enough and blasts the other winged man with some Martian vision. And it looks like a pretty powerful blast, too. But the winged man can repair himself by temporarily tuning his body to a higher, vi to a higher vibratory key and returning to our world unharmed. But before he can really do anything about that, Wonder Woman lands, slamming his head into the ground and knocking him out. They're soon rejoined by GL, who uses his ring to restrain the unconscious winged man, and they all head to higher ground so Zariel can explain exactly what's going on. Meanwhile, on the moon, the ground begins to shake. And that's it. We jump back to that little corner of hell again and find out that Neron is responsible for the teleporter mishap, which also serves to isolate Superman. He tells his little demons that he has something for them to do, but in return he will allow them to pull the moon down from the sky so that the night can be as dark as it was when they were young. And he creates a moon avatar that, ca that they can use to control it, and the demon known as Gast grabs it and starts pulling. Meanwhile, back in San Francisco, a large glowing pyramid fills the skies over the city. Zariel explains that he's an angel, and that the other darker wingmen are also angels. They work for Asmodel, the most dangerous harrier of the se in the seven heavens, and he wants Zariel dead because he knows things that Asmodel doesn't want anyone or anything else to know. And now that he's become flesh, Asmodel could succeed in doing just that. At this point, Wonder Woman realizes that Aquaman Aquaman? Wow. At this point, Wonder Woman realizes that Aquaman isn't with them, so Zariel flies off to help. At this point, the Sea King is being chased by Tramiel across a rooftop, leaps across the street to a building with a pool on the roof, and crashes through that to the apartment below. As Tramiel is about to attack the Sea King, Zariel shows up, knocking the, knocking Tramiel across the room, then uses his sonic flash to turn the Dark Angel to ash. Before he can really thank Zariel, Aquaman feels as though something is happening to the tides. Later, atop the Golden Gate Bridge, we see that the pyramid has completely enveloped the sky, cutting the city off from the rest of the world. And we also learn that nothing can get into or out of it, and Zariel tries to explain what would happen if heaven comes to earth. But then, they hear the judgment horn signaling the arrival of Asmodel's chariot. Wow, that's a lot in there, wasn't there? Um, page one. One of the nurses is reading the National Whisper with a headline about Dollman. And also, according to her name tag, her name is Nurse Ratchet. Which I thought was kind of funny. Page six. We get a cameo by If in the JLA Trophy Room, plus a display of Green Arrow's trick arrows, which will come in handy in a couple of issues. Also, while Superman is voicing his concerns about living up to his myth, he's carrying a globe which not only shows us that he literally has the weight of the world on his shoulders, but I guess technically it also shows that he supports the whole world. Um, I wonder if that's intended or if that's just, I'm reading too much into it. Knowing Grant Morrison, it probably was intended. Uh, page 7. Kyle must be getting better with his ring for him to be sending a ring construct all the way to the moon from Earth. Unless he was actually up on the moon as well, but they don't indicate that. Page 9, we see that all of the angels in this story have wings on their ankles, similar to Namor the Submariner. 
Moving on to page 10, for those that don't know, an otaku is, term for, is a Japanese term for someone who stays at home all the time, has no social or love life, and spends most of their time obsessing over anime, manga, video games, etc. So it makes sense why this guy creates Animec and Mangatron. And I also find it funny that instead of being drawn to look like a typical Asian, the kid inside the Animec armor is drawn to look as he's from an anime or manga, complete with big eyes and a cartoony face. The only thing he's missing is green hair. Although, I guess the Joker has green hair, so I can't go by that. Um, let's see, page 11. Kyle's smoking cartoon fish construct actually gave me a chuckle. I had forgotten it was there, so seeing it was pretty cool. Uh, page 16. Zariel's description of Asmodel sounds pretty biblical. Here's how he describes him. Imagine a being whose every heartbeat is a thousand Hiroshimas, whose gaze can strip flesh from bone, whose blood is the universal solvent, an acid ten thousand times purer than any on earth. If you can imagine that, you can just about imagine Asmodel. Sounds pretty cool, huh? Well, when we see him next issue, he doesn't seem that much different from any other alien creature the JLA has fought before, if maybe a little uglier. In page 19, Aquaman mistaking Zariel for Hawkman makes sense here, but Hawkman, Hawkman wouldn't return for a few more years. And finally, on page 21, Zariel gives an example of what would happen if heaven actually came to earth. See, the light of heaven would slash open your corneas. The music of heaven would puncture your eardrums and drive you insane. The air of heaven would burst your lungs and boil your blood. Only spirit can bear heaven's touch. All flesh is destroyed. And then heaven starts to come to earth. And that's when you start to be afraid. Now, overall, Morrison really packs a lot into this issue. He could easily have split this one into two issues, but I'm really glad he didn't. Plus, while there's a lot of stuff going on, none of it really seems crammed into the issue. I really feel sorry for Howard Porter here, though. The stuff this man is asked to draw in this issue is crazy. I mean, water parting, a heavenly chariot, held in a flower pot. And yet, he does it quite well, like it's just normal stuff. Plus, with all the winged guys in this issue, he does a good job of drawing a lot of feathers floating around, which isn't something most artists would think to do. And whatever Neron is drinking, it looks like it's full of some kind of creatures floating around in it. Kind of like what we saw on the cover, it's kind of gross. But boy, that cliffhanger is awesome. You've got Flash stuck between two places. Superman having to deal with saving the moon all alone. And the rest of the team dealing with an invasion from heaven. How could you not want to pick up the next issue? Fortunately, we don't have to wait a whole month to find out... <clears throat> Fortunately, we don't have to wait a whole month to find out what happens next. After a couple more promos, we'll look at part two. My name is Steve Lacey, and I'm a podcaster. The randomizer hit my long boxes, and now I'm lost in my comic book collection. 
Help me. Help me. Listen, please. Is there anybody out there who can hear me? I'm being controlled by an overbearing and fickle randomizer. I'm doing everything I can to review this book in the next 20 minutes. This is the 20-minute long box. The 20-minute long box is the briefest and most random of comic book podcasts. Every two weeks, a completely random comic book from my collection is the subject of the show. Find me at the show's site, 20minutelongbox.libsyn.com, the show's blog at 20minutelongbox.wordpress.com, or search for 20-minute long box on iTunes. Prepare yourself for random. Hey, Johnny, it's been a while. Yeah, it's a good thing we're off our hiatus. Yeah, now we can finally get back to talking about some classic Daredevil issues. What if we threw some current Daredevil in there? You mean the awesome Mark Wade run? Sure, I'd love to talk about that stuff. Awesome. So if any of our listeners want to join us again, or if any listeners want to join us along the way, they can listen to From Yellow to Red, a Daredevil podcast. It's found on iTunes and at fromyellowtored.libsyn.com. Yay! All right. JLA number seven had a cover date of July 1997 and an on-sale date of May 9th, 1997, and a cover price of $1.95. Once again, we have a cover by Howard Porter, John Dell, and Liquid, and this time we see Zariel, this time with a different colored skin, because apparently the uh, Liquid didn't know about the fact that he's not a white man. Um, Looks like he's being attacked by a fiery staff and is using his flame sword to kind of hold the whoever's attacking him back. Meanwhile, it looks like he's also trying to hold up uh, Martian Manhunter from falling, which is good because right now Martian Manhunter looks like he's a little crispy. I mean, he's got smoke coming off of him and everything. Okay. In uh, the, the title of this issue is called Heaven on Earth, written by Grant Morrison, penciled by Howard Porter, inked by John Dell, colored by Pat Garrahy, separated by Heroic Age, lettered by Ken Lopez, and edited by Ruben Diaz. Asmodel lands on Earth, calling out for Zariel, who soon shows up to confront him along with the rest of the Justice League. Meanwhile, in space, a Star Labs orbital lab starts pointing out that the moon has begun to fall towards the Earth. We also see that Superman is rigging up some large chains and rerouting the Watchtower's power. In our favorite little corner of hell, Gast finds out that he can no longer move the moon avatar, as though some force is pulling the moon back to its proper orbit. Up in the orbital lab, sensors indicate that something is draining the electrical energy from the Watchtower, and and that is causing a magnetic pull to develop, which is causing the Earth to repel the moon. All of this is being caused by Superman, who is using his new energy powers to apparently control the process, allowing him to literally move the moon. Back on Earth, Asmodel blasts our heroes with the scouring light of heaven, which all but Jean are apparently able to dodge. He then attacks with a subsonic attack, which seems to hurt everyone, but during this, Zariel actually has a chance to explain to everyone that Asmodel is planning to rebel, thinking that he can succeed where Lucifer failed. Jean has had enough, and slams into Asmodel with tremendous force, but it really doesn't seem to do much 
beyond damaging the surrounding buildings. Since Superman can't get into the city to help due to the glowing pyramid blocking him, Wonder Woman decides to head up to Zariel and disable it. No. Wonder Woman decides to head up to the chariot with Zariel to disable it, leaving GL and Aquaman to deal with the other angels. Back at the hospital, more of the staff have entered the coma patient's room, hoping to see the JLA. The mere mention of the Justice League causes the coma patient to wake up, knock over the patient on his night or knock over the plant on his nightstand, and leave the hospital amidst chaos. More on that in the notes. Up on the moon, Superman tries to teleport to San Francisco, but it still isn't working, so he decides to head down there the old fashioned way, which I guess with his energy powers is now the new fashioned way anyway. Flash, meanwhile, realizes that if he alters the rate of his molecular motion, he can force himself to emerge in San Francisco. Speaking of the city by the bay, while GL and Aquaman keep the other angels busy, Wonder Woman and Zariel bust into Asmodel's chariot and disable the glowing pyramid angelic shield thing. Keep in mind that when, the, when a mortal touches the chariot, whether they be from Mars, or Krypton, or made of clay, or from under the sea... It burns, and she's busting through it and tearing things apart, with every touch burning her. Keep, keep that in mind. Anyway, down below, Aquaman helps Flash out of the teleport tube, and then brings him up to speed, while Superman arrives to relieve the ex- an exhausted and hurting Martian Manhunter in taking on Asmodel, while the Dark Angel wrestles with the Man of Tomorrow. Another problem emerges. Asmodel's chariot is now falling. So while Wonder Woman tries to at least slow its descent by pushing on the bottom of it, which burns, Flash and GL whip up a construct that will turn his speed into sound vibrations. As Zariel and Martian Manhunter joined, join Wonder Woman in holding up the chariot, keep in mind Martian Manhunter's one weakness is fire, and he's now on fire, Flash is able to generate the correct frequency to cancel out the angel's supersonic vibrations, sending them and the chariot presumably back to heaven. Later, Zariel offers to help with the cleanup, but declines an offer to join the, the yeah, but declines an offer to join the league because there are things he needs to do. These things lead into a miniseries that I won't be covering since it isn't by Morrison and doesn't really have much bearing on the rest of the JLA series. Later still, the team arrive at the Watchtower for Green Arrow's inauguration, this time joined by Batman, because the rule is that they have to have six members present, and Jean is back home recovering. However, they quickly find themselves all under attack and knocked unconscious. Standing over their unconscious bodies, the Key declares that he has returned, and now they can begin. Okay, page one. Um, Asmodel sure is ugly, with a giant nose ring, feathers for hair, and a fiery staff that actually looks more organic than the ones we've seen before. Plus, he's attacking outside of Kirby Comics. I mean, what the hell? Uh, page six. The image of Superman as he's creating the magnetic pole is beautiful, and I'm going to include it in the show notes, but I should point out that it's mentioned actually on page 5, so I've jumped ahead too much, but on page 5, that the magnetic pole is an opposite charge to that of Earth, so Earth's repelling it. Actually, the magnetic pole would have to be a like charge to be for it to, for the Earth to repel it. If it was an opposite charge, then that would actually pull it to Earth faster. Flash fact. 
Uh, page nine. Poor Jean. He gets blasted. He gets pissed and goes at Asmodella pretty much full force, and yet he doesn't seem to be doing anything. At first, I thought he was kind of getting the short end of the stick in, he, in this issue, but then I realized that, you know, when you touch, probably probably when you touch Asmodel as well as his chariot, you burn. As I mentioned, Manhunter's one weakness is fire, so that's he's fighting in a weakened state, so maybe that's why it's not working as well. Um, page 11, when the coma patient, whom we now know was the key, leaves the hospital, we see some strange stuff going on in his wake. For example, the nurse that had been watching him and that he grabbed before he left seems to be having some kind of seizure on his hospital bed. Outside in the hallway, we see one guy sitting on the floor, looks like he's literally pulling his hair out. Excuse me, literally pulling his hair out. We got a guy who looks like a he's untangled his straitjacket and is writing unlock, 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 unlock on the wall. We've got another guy, Dr. Huh, Dr. Katz, um, who's got a smiley face tie, by the way, pulling keys out of his pocket. And we've got the other woman, Nurse Ratchet, appears to be making out with a cadaver. So, yeah, that's interesting. Um, page 12. You know, it just hit me that the breathing apparatus that Superman's been using for the last two issues while he's been busy rerouting the power and setting things up to create that magnetic pole looks very, very similar to the force field belt with oxygen mask that he used way back when he went into exile in space, which would have been about nine years earlier before this story. It's got the Batman-like pouch belt. Um, it's got the gas mask. The only difference is this one's more color-coordinated with his new outfit, so instead of being yellow, like the old one was. Uh, page 13, we see Martian Manhunter helping out against the Angels, but on page 15, we see that he's been busy fighting Asmodel. I'm going to chalk that up to artistic error. Right. Page 16. Superman wrestles an angel. Enough said. Page 23. The key's introduction is pretty cool, but it just doesn't seem to be as cool of a cliffhanger as last issue. You probably would still want to pick it up because you want to see what's going to happen to the Justice League because they're, you know, all knocked out. Basically, this guy could do anything to them. Maybe, I don't know, cut off all their heads. But, um, yeah. Who knows? We'll have to find that out next episode. Anyway, overall, I like that Morrison gave everyone a chance to shine over both parts of the story, although Aquaman didn't really get to do much in this issue, although between sometime between last issue and this issue, um, the hook part on his hand, not the hook part, but the attachment on his arm for his harpoon hand got a, went from just being like a Bra- look a brass looking I don't know bell shaped cover to this really technologically intricate thing it got really techy somehow in between here don't know how that happened but it happened um but it was pretty cool to see him have something to do last issue I guess if um let's see I mentioned how I didn't how I thought Marsh Manager kind of got the short end of the stick 
but makes sense. Also, I, I used to think that the scenes with Neron and his demons were kind of pointless and just part of a setup for the Zariel miniseries. Because I mean, what I mean, what does him messing with the moon have to do with anything? But now that I've look, I'm looking at it for this show. Um, I'm thinking, I'm realizing that Neron was actually interested in the events that were happening down in San Francisco and specifically set it up so that Superman and Flash, the two members of the team that, as we saw in this issue, could bring a swift end to the conflict, couldn't help. So it's subtle, but it works, I guess. Um... But that's going to bring us to the end of yet another episode of Charlie's GeekCast. I want to thank you all once again for joining me. I apologize for the delay of this episode. Again, there were technical difficulties, and then I lost the episode. Anyway, next time, we're going to continue our coverage of the JLA with issues 8 and 9. The Key versus Green Arrow. Hmm. We'll see you then. This has been an episode of Charlie's GeekCast hosted by Charlie Niemeyer. The show's website is www.charliesgeekcast.com where you'll find notes and images for each episode. Please feel free to leave a comment there or email the show at charliesgeekcast at gmail.com and I'll read them on the air. You can also subscribe to the show on iTunes. I also have another show called Superman of the Bronze Age where I cover Superman comics published between 1970 and 1986. You can find that at www.supermanofthebronzeage.com Charlie's Geek Cast is an I Don't Have a Fake Company name production. All images and music used are copyright their respective copyright holders. Thank you for listening, and God bless. Hey, neighbor. Welcome again to this neighborhood. I'd like to show you something. You know what this is? Maybe if I press this button. This is a cassette player with a little cassette in here. And there's nothing written on it. So we'll just have to play it to see what it is. Do you ever imagine things? Are they scary things? Are they scary things? Do you ever imagine things? Things you'd like to have. Did you ever see a cat's eyes in the dark? And wonder what they were. What they were. Did you ever pretend about things like that? Did you ever pretend about things like that? Did you ever grow anything in the garden of your mind? In the garden of your mind. You can grow ideas in the garden of your mind. In the garden of your mind. It's good to be curious about many things. You can think about things and make believe. All you have to do is think, and they'll grow. person that you see is somewhat, is different somewhat different from every other person in the world. Some can do some things, some can do others. Did you ever think of the many things you've learned to do? Many things Did you ever grow anything in the garden of your mind? You can grow ideas in the garden of your mind. Curious about many things. You can think about things and make believe. All you have to do is think, and they'll grow. Did you feel like going like that? Let's give the fish some food. 